Hello and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. we're chatting to James Peake and Duncan Crow about the unusual way their debut book Scoundrels Volume 1 came to be. We discuss writing collaboratively and whether it's ever possible to take humour a little too far. We founded Black Door Press in 2016 as an independent publisher specialising in histories, biographies and memoirs. Within days of opening for business, we were sent a manuscript from two elderly gentlemen who claimed to have been decorated officers during the Second World War, and then operatives in a peculiar type of secret service up until the 1980s. These memoirs, contained within a series of letters, reveal a fractious and volatile relationship stretching back 70 years. After reading them, we declined, explaining that we were unable to publish on the grounds of taste, decency, libel risk, commercial viability the overblown prose style, and our general unease. Sadly, this was not the end of the matter. After speaking with the Major's legal representative, Massingbird QC, we came to understand that by signing for the manuscript's delivery, we'd formed an unbreakable contract requiring us to publish it. We therefore warmly welcome our new authors to the Blackdoor Stable. We're legally obliged to state that Scoundrels Volume 1 is the sweepingly tragic, emotionally devastating, heartfelt, uplifting and profound memoirs of two of England's greatest unsung heroes, Major Victor Montgomery Cornwall and Major Arthur St. John Trevelyan. Spanning much of the 20th century, it's an epic tale of love, war, sex, adventure, deceit and murder centred on the infamous gentleman's club, Scoundrels of Piccadilly and it might just be the greatest story ever told. Majors Cornwall and Trevelyan will resist all requests for comment on the contents of this work. All complaints and claims for libel should be referred to Massingbird QC at Broadsword Chambers, Middle Inner Temple, London. Duncan Crow and James Peake, London, February 2017. Hello, welcome to the Riff Raff podcast. We are here today with Duncan Crow and James Peake, the editors of Scoundrels. Hello. Hello. Hello, and Amy's here as well. Hello. Hello, Amy. Hello. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Um, can you kick us off by telling us how Scoundrels came to be? Mm. Yes. Yes. Uh, uh, okay. Um, yeah, Scoundrels came about almost by accident, actually. Um, it started off with a series of emails between James and myself um, that were simply designed to make each other laugh. And they were, they were in the guise of two different characters to us. They, were, they, they ended up developing into the characters of two retired majors who were much older than we were. And they were quite scabrous, insulting emails. Quite. Quite, yeah. <laughs> Combative. Combative emails, yeah. yeah. And... Um, and we got to a point where we'd written so much um, of, a, of a fictional memoir between these two characters that we decided that we were going to turn it into a book. And we ended up rewriting basically everything. But that was the kind of genesis of how it came about. We didn't talk about it for about six months, did we? No. So, so I wrote to you, you wrote back to me. Um, I wrote to you um, 
saying that you know I designed your coffin and <laughs> you wrote back accusing me of embezzling money from a children's charity mm. and that really set the tone yeah and then uh, we but we didn't actually talk we, we go out to the pub all the time with proper mates in real life and we didn't talk about it for six months and by that time we'd written hundreds of yeah. thousands of words it was like a sort of secret thing happening between us yeah. around all of our other parts of our lives my wife thought I was having an affair <laughs> they and then she found out the truth I mean yeah. it worked and like, in many this ways, is a great guy he was so. having an affair <laughs> yeah. um, that's yeah. number just two. not that yeah. kind yeah. So, so it started out being because obviously the, the structure of the book is this correspondence between your two main characters mm. and then and then their versions of events, which they obviously argue over. Yes. So, so did you when you first started off with just the emails that were kind of the correspondence, and then you were then and you were talking about fictional events, which you then went on to write. Well, you, yes. we should make it clear that the majors are real, and <laughs> um, we sort of conjured them into being, and they've been a millstone around our neck ever since, right? It's yeah, and they continue to be so. So yeah. really, we should be interviewing them rather than you guys. Well, yeah, I mean, in a way, you are, but it's been. Um, yeah, it's it's so very difficult. I mean, you'll see from the forward in the book that we um, didn't want to publish these stories. <laughs> we shouldn't think they're best left alone. They should be just in an archive somewhere with absolutely no light shed on them at all. I mean, they're they're disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe we should explain kind of like, <laughs> yeah, because obviously, yeah, we need like it's such a great concept and such a great idea. Yes. But it would be good to obviously people that are listening to this are writers and stuff and so they'll you know that they'll understand they'll understand understand okay so in some ways the majors so you're right we did we did start um the the emails started out as just emails and then they developed into extracts of a fictional memoir between these two characters which alluded to past slights that each other had um sort of dealt on each other throughout throughout their shared history um and Yes, we needed a we needed some kind of ruse to some kind of um, vehicle to um, show why these letters, why these memoirs were suddenly making it into um, into the world and allowed to be published, and that came um, well the the ruse or the the device we used was the idea that James and I set up a publishing company, um, Backdoor Press, which is true, it exists. It's a legal um, entity. It's, a legal entity. <laughs> it's absolutely you, you can, you can look it up. Um, and our first commission, albeit a reluctant commission, um, was the manuscript the major sent us. Mm. And we, we read the manuscript. We realised there was absolutely no way we could publish this. It was just scandalous. It was libelous. We were going to probably be sent to prison if we published this. Yeah. But we then were informed that we'd formed an unbreakable legal bond by signing for the manuscript which ensured that it would be published or we're um, going to lose our houses yeah so yeah so do you think do you think obviously you, do you think it's kind of given you like more of because obviously this book is ridiculous and it's, it's rude and, yeah, yeah, yeah it's, like the best yeah. <laughs> that is a review that we would put on the front it's, like, it's yeah. maybe giving you more of a free reign to kind of just be like we can be as like ridiculous and rude oh, as 100%. possible because yes. you're kind of yeah which is which is fun yeah. yeah, I mean, you're absolutely bang on, Amy. Um, the we're freed from the shackles of being ourselves <laughs> on the page, and we can suddenly come up with genuinely ludicrous kind of storylines. I found that really, and that's such a good question. I've never actually asked you that. Man. Is that is that true of you? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. What what was the question? <laughs> why, 
What was the well, question? Because it was so liberating to be, yeah, to be, oh, be yeah. able to be somebody else. Yeah, well, it's well, you know, that's what I've always wanted. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think there's truth in that. There is a, um, I think the book probably has that has an energy of, you know, two people who are almost at that point where you see people in the, in the middle of an argument um and some of the what was interesting is the way you know the book was written was i would receive an email from james and i'd take myself off for half an hour to a quiet place where i wouldn't be disturbed really excited to read it what's you know what's happened now to my character that he's written that i haven't had any say over <laughs> and I, I so i'd go away i'd read it and i'd say oh sod now and then i'd have to pick up the pieces so that is how you did it i was going to so that's exactly yeah. so that's, that's how fun. Yeah. yeah so then so i mean quite so near the beginning of the book my character does something to james's character which is quite fundamental to the rest of his life it's quite a big thing and um and james didn't know anything about that when right. we wrote it and then i was getting these texts from him going are you talking Sorry. about the incident in the desert? The, the incident in the desert. Yeah. At the end of chapter I mean, one. don't give it away. Yeah. Oh. Um, yeah, I couldn't quite believe my eyes uh, when I read that. I was like, oh gosh, okay, that's yeah. happened. Well, imagine, <laughs> but then I was delighted to see what he'd done, you know, to <laughs> as his riposte. Oh, this is this is what's happened to my character now. Okay, that's uh, you know, hats off. That was good. Yeah, it, that that was a, a, a real moment when I opened that email and I read what happened to me or Trevelyan in the desert, and it was life changing. Medically yeah. life changed. It was actually <laughs> life changed. Re- yeah, re- really disgusting. I can, I can, um, the more disgusting, the better, I can't wait. Well, I was just thinking, you bastard. Now, how am I going to react to that? And it took me about a month to come up with something satisfying enough in response. And so what that gave us, Duncan says, it gave us a kind of energy to not be outdone um, with each of the individual chapters, which make up the first sort of 20 years in their odyssey, their adventure, um, that takes them through the most of the 20th century. And what we also did is, is we, we came up with so many adventures over this initial sort of six-month period where I've never been so creatively fertile. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, we, we've, we've got enough, unfortunately, we've got enough for volume two and volume three. So we've got the feeling that those manuscripts from the majors are going to arrive at our well, talking of them, let's pick up on them a little bit. And I, I'm really interested because you're both driving the narrative for each other's characters, but the actual characters themselves, mm. you're able to develop, you know, independently and have a say in who they are. Yes. To, you know, could you tell us a little bit about who each of the majors are? Independently? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Major Cornwall um, is um, more of a loner than. Trevelyan, um, based partly because of his upbringing and partly because of something that happened to him um, with Dew. his um, first ever love of his life, mm-hmm. Fuffy Morning Dew. Um, <laughs> why, Not why, Fluffy. Why, 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 the typing. why are you laughing? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> f- f- fuffy Morning Dew, who um, I don't want to really give, give well, away what happens to you. Can you explain that? Why? She was hit by lightning. Twice, yeah. yeah. She survived Lucky. the first strike. Because, well, because he gave Cornwall gave her a kite as an engagement yeah. in the middle of a violent electrical storm on the top of a hill. Yeah, so, very, very so lightning does strike twice. Anyway, so, um, so when he found her reduced to a sort of smouldering pile shoes, of ash and a pair yeah. of open so open toed sandals, 
Um, <laughs> yeah, he his sort of his heart kind of calcified, and he realized that he could never really love again, which is quite sad. But um, he finds throughout a little bit of volume one, and then what you'll see later on as the character develops in volume two, um, he surrounds himself with sort of animals. So he has a pet golden eagle called Majestic Death, which was a gift from the Sultan of Brunei. Um, so that's um, sort of like one of his kind of like... Um, that's companions. how he emotionally connects, isn't it? That's how he emotionally connects. He has, a, he has a kind of a man who does called Baxter who drives him and cooks for him and lives with him at Hellcat Manor, his enormous country estate in, mm. um, in, in Devon. But so he's more of a loner. Um, he's a bit of a ladies' man. Describe Trevelyan. So, how's, so how's Trevelyan is also, I mean, they both belong to a club called Scoundrels. Scoundrels is a club you go to when your blood runs hot, normal life's too boring for you. Scoundrels is a place where all the most dis- sort of weird and peculiar diplomatic missions that the palace or Whitehall or the government don't want anything to do with. So um, we're members of that. To be a member of that club, you have to be a sort of alpha male, like a kind of Ian Fleming hero uh, uh, sort of a flashman, if you like. Those are the kind of touchstones. But Trevelyan is very much at the sort of lower end of that spectrum in terms of <laughs> testosterone, I think, whereas Cornwall's like proper, like alpha, alpha. He's a kind of Bond figure. Trevelyan's yeah. more of a kind of wannabe family man in many ways. He So he lost his parents um, in a very devastating way when they were playing sardines. <laughs> don't, don't give anything away, I want to read it. In, uh, in his own It's a very dangerous game. <laughs> I do like that, Rosie. Um, <laughs> but it was very... I mean, you were laughing. I'm but, tickled. But, you know, if the Major was here, he'd be stony-faced. He still hasn't gone over it. Yeah. All he's ever so, wanted... God, I feel so disrespectful now. Can we edit, <laughs> can we yeah. edit my hysterical laugh No, no. Out? Keep it in, because people might buy the book, right? <laughs> if, 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 well, if, they should It's even books. better on the page. So, um, so yeah, the, the, the thing about Trevelyan is he's always wanted a family. Um, and so... At the end of Volume One, he starts kind of getting his family back together. In Volume Two, he uh, well, that that that, well, maybe not, but that idea develops, and suddenly uh, the the Trevelyan household starts to fill up a little bit. And there are other differences. Cornwall thinks he's a poet. Trevelyan (laughs) knows Cornwall isn't a poet. That's a a really big difference. (laughs) (laughs) Is that is that a latent sort of wish on your part? Well, who that, who knows? Who knows? Wait, who knows? I mean, I'm not the, the person to the ask. That's the brilliance, isn't it? That you can act out maybe these latent, you know, fantasies and whims without having to ever kind of explain Take it. And, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. exactly. Without the fact that they make no human sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's right. That's bang on. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, Cornwall does fancy fancy himself as a as a poet and a writer. Um, and I think at one point he was more of a kind of romantic type, but then, yeah. um, then I think the the Fuffy incident um, put put things sharply into focus. Yeah, he never um, recovered from that. Before, no, um, oh, God. he claims he um, had, had he, that he slept with the two women from ABBA in the nineteen seventies, <laughs> and yeah. he's currently being sued. We can't talk about that, but there is a poem in there. <laughs> oh yeah, Swedish uh, batteries. Yeah. <laughs> It's uh, it's, it's, it's not for faint-hearted. Very no, it's not for children. No, it is not for children. Yeah, that, that we we should it's really put that up front. Children. Yeah, no, yeah. it isn't. For children. Yeah. Um, do you have a favourite thing or a least favourite thing about each of the char- each of the majors? 
Yeah. It's like we've prepared them in advance. It is yeah. almost like <laughs> I wish we had <laughs> thought about it. Oh god. Um well my, I don't I'm not particularly well I'm obviously I'm not a fan of Cornwall's poetry because it's agonizing. Um but it might be a, a sort of modicum of oh, jealousy I, I've, as yeah. well. Okay, yeah. So um, I've thought of mine. And I uh <laughs> There's actually there's a huge number of things that, I, that Trevelyan doesn't like about Cornwall. He doesn't like his arrogance, his lack of planning, the fact that he took him into the desert on a, a two-week trek with nothing but 70 bottles of wine <laughs> and an elephant. Um, there's, he doesn't like the way that you get, get Trevelyan gets he's, he's sort of embroiled in your ludicrous schemes. He didn't like the Terracotta Warriors idea, did he? No. I mean, I think from Cornwall's point of view, he thinks that Trevelyan's just a kind of burden kind of you know uh, albatross around his neck but his, his is it his favorite thing or his least favorite thing i can't quite decide but it's his hair <laughs> his hair gets of referenced course. many times uh, throughout the book sometimes mm. it's described as uh, a cavalcade of gypsy caravans <laughs> uh, sometimes a frozen standard lamp yeah this is the Everest chapter his his hair gets uh, lots of, lot of uh, lots of love yeah. because yeah. it's a thing of sort of grotesque beauty. Yeah. But you're supposed to not ever be able to picture it. I, I really love that when you um, th- when you told me that you'd come up with this device of describing my hair as a, a thing that could that shed absolutely no light on what my hair on, on what it actually looked like. like. You couldn't visualise really. What it, you sort of thought you could, and then you thought, no, I can't. Well, that's, <laughs> that's what you've gone for when you use the description. Yeah. Like. So. <laughs> Yeah. So set, create a sense, but not actually give a visual. Yeah, exactly. And then we yeah. realised we had to put them on the cover, so it was all for naught. It's weird, yeah. actually, how they do bear a slight resemblance. Very, so you guys, very isn't that uncanny? Yeah, do you know yeah. this guy? The guy who designed this, Mike uh, Gambrill, brilliant. Just brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. He's a great yeah. Bristolian. Yeah, I mean, he's a great unbelievable yeah. talent. Yeah. And I can't understand. I mean, I think he's done a couple of books before. But we're snapping him up for the next two covers. Um, I'm assuming we can. Mike, please say yes. <laughs> uh, he, he's just phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and brilliant to work with. Re- just, yeah. yeah. MikeGambrill.com. Thank you, yeah. We'll, we'll, link, it we'll, link, no, we'll it. link to it. Yeah. Please um, do, yeah. So, obviously, this, it's, this book's hilarious and, I mean, completely absurd. Mm. Cheers. Kind of, yeah, it is a compliment. It reminded me a little bit of, like, Monty Python in terms of kind of, like, how much ridiculous stuff happens and how you're like, oh, are they're taking it there, are they? Okay, mm. yeah, and, like, mm. and I love that. Um, so were both of you, um, it sounds like you were, but were both of you kind of on the same terms and, like, the same thing in terms of um, that. Refer- reference material. And how far, obviously you were, but how were you both kind of as willing to take it as far as each other? Was it kind of like a bit of a competition? <laughs> yeah. In terms of, like... I think we were very, yeah, I think from the word go, we were probably quite close to each other on that I think in fact if anything the original material the original emails took it even further and it was only when we started the editing process and we reread a lot of that stuff that we said actually let's dial that down a bit um, to keep it more rooted in um, the real world but nevertheless still make it so so it's kind of just on the edge of could that have happened no, I, yeah, I don't. You're think obsessed could, but... with coherent universes, aren't you? Well, well I wanted. I didn't want the. I didn't want the scoundrels universe to break any of its own internal rules. So it had to have rules. Um, so things happen in it. Which, so, for instance, Cornwall has trained majestic death to kill people on command. 
um, his, his golden eagle. In real life, that couldn't happen. But but in, in the Scoundrels universe, that's entirely possible. And there's loads of other kind of more, much more weird things than that that's possible. Yeah. But it could never break its own rules. So it could never go so stupid that one of them was able to sort of leap over a building or yeah, yeah. do anything do anything as ridiculous as that because um, it had to be rooted in some kind of reality. So this is my my take on it anyway. Just so the 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 reader kind of felt like in safe hands in that respect. Yeah, yeah that's, I mean, this is going to sound really pompous, but um, the thing about universities is true is that we felt as soon as they started writing to each other these majors that the, the world kind of sprung up around them, especially the world of Scoundrels Club. There's such a riot of history and things that you know genuinely are jaw-dropping in real life in the history of London gentlemen's clubs and adventures and daring do I mean the the other day people now send us source material so this this is a scoundrels type of person thing thing. so a guy who trains beetles to fight or a guy who was a six and a half foot tall Norwegian guy who was um, buried by an avalanche and the way he escaped, and this is documented, is he did a poo, fashioned it into the shape of a knife, and then used that to chisel his way oh, out of froze. a frozen yeah. poo. And, it, and he used that. I know. <laughs> amazing. And that, and that, that, that's that is as scandalous as it gets, yeah. we'd like to think. Yeah. So we're trying to kind of garner and gather as much stuff that we can use to kind of feed this universe of ludicrous <laughs> but just about edge of yeah, believability. That's so much fun. What great emails to receive. Yeah. They are, yeah. It's wonderful. Anyone listening, if you've got anything, just <laughs> track it in. Send, send, it out, send it their way. Yeah. Um, did you ever have a temptation to censor one another? Did one of you ever read something that was do you know what? I don't think that's that funny, or I don't really want to go in that. Oh direction. yeah, all the time. Oh okay, I thought I was going to yeah, like yeah. some sort of no, really no, hidden no. Probably tens of thousands of words, hundred, probably hundred thousands of words away, because some of it just doesn't pass muster. Gosh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's one of the benefits of having two people, sort of um, both contributing. We've we've got an immediate person to edit. So, um, and we we know each other well enough now that I could send James a chapter, and he would read it and be perfectly comfortable with saying, no, I think that's a bit weak, or I like the bare bones of this, but I think you should dial that back or dial that up or whatever, and likewise other around that. And, you know, we don't get offended much with no, each no, other. That, that's um, the secret. I think you hit the head on, the, on a, hit the nail on the head. Hell like, on no, yeah, I, yeah, I wish you would. In that, because there's two of us, the back and forth is the most valuable thing. We're both right... Be, you know, being a writer in each other's editor constantly, yeah. and that I think if there's one thing that's contributed to its success, I would say it's that. Yeah, yeah, and I think as well because you receive this this fresh chapter with the chapter next that could theoretically almost go anywhere. I mean, it has to again follow a certain timeline, and you and we want to keep an overarching story that we both know where we want to take the the trilogy. But again, you know, I'll go back to the idea of there being an energy. The moment you finish reading, um, or the moment I've finished reading James's chapter, I would immediately want to sit down, just as just in the way you would if you're having an argument with someone. You immediately want to come back at <laughs> them with your retort. And again, you know, I'd get it and I'd sit down and go right, tap 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 yeah. tap. Here he goes. I'm coming back at you. Um, and hopefully, throughout the editing process, we didn't sort of edit out that energy because. 
I think that's you know one of the things that gives it a certain freshness. That yeah, um, I think you're right. I think you're right. But there's some things that had to go. Yeah, yeah well, I mean on, that's fine. On that note, <laughs> are, is there anything that writers shouldn't joke about, or that you two felt that you couldn't joke about? Very difficult to joke about kids. Very very difficult to. I, I mean, you know, I think. I think the one one problem we have to surmount is to make people understand that this is not set in the kind of early twentieth century imperialist universe where there's no respect for or very little respect in the, on the path of, part, on the part of the sorts of characters that we've created for um, other races, genders, sexualities, and it's very very clear. That once you get into it, that it isn't that universe. It's a meritocracy. Scandal's Club is a meritocracy, um, and it doesn't matter if you're gay. It doesn't matter if you're a woman. It doesn't matter if you're a you know a thirteen-year-old girl. You know you can be a, a scoundrel. Um, it was really important to us that that um, came kind of through loud and clear enough. Yeah, I mean to be clear, you... there are no thirteen-year-old girls who are scoundrels. In this club, one, but the reason you're referencing that is something that that's a uh, a little thing that we, that's happening in volume two, which is quite exciting. But um, I mean, go, going back to your point, I I don't know. I mean, I think I think it's a big, a very big question to ask: Is there anything that you wouldn't joke about, or one shouldn't joke about? That's a very big question. What I will say is is that we did feel there were certain things that we wouldn't joke about. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, there were you know we we wouldn't we didn't want it to be like offensive. Mm. to people really we wanted it we wanted to um i mean that's a subjective thing anyway but yeah we wanted it to be um a bit shocking in places and but we didn't want it to really upset anyone or any group of people yeah, or anything. that's not really definitely. where that's not really what it's, well, there was, what there it's was, about there was one thing i was always thinking is would jeremy clarkson find this funny and if he would then i wasn't really going to put it in because I don't like that boorishness yeah, yeah. and that sort of nastiness. It's important to recognise that our characters are grotesques and but they always get their own come up they always yeah. sort of hoist yeah, on yeah, their absolutely. own patar. I mean I think the, the, their own misfortune. Yeah, I think the the, the the butt of the joke should always be the majors. Yeah. So they're very much of their time. I mean they're now in the nineties. So um, um, throughout the nineteen sort of 30s and 40s when they were very young men the world was a different place and they carry the views of the people who would have lived at that time well some of them well some of them yeah some of them however um you know it should be clear that actually the, the majors are always the in some ways they're, they're, they're quite incompetent so a lot of the jokes come from <laughs> yeah. from the, the, the yeah the things that they think they their perception of what they're good at and the reality of what they're actually good yeah. at you've smashed it in terms of trying to get that kind of humour yeah very very entertaining and so and also like what a fun it must have been such a fun process to write it how you say obviously that you had like a hundred thousand words that you had to cut out but like how long did it take you guys to write the book yeah three years from soup to nuts okay um all that includes a lot of production because um just learning about the rudiments of the stages when you've done that final draft you know and getting that, turning it into a book. I mean, it's half a battle to have the words, right? And al- and also, some of that was almost um, not wasted writing, but writing stuff that isn't actually in the first volume. But it but it isn't wasted because actually, it's writing that we've done some of the 
the hard work for volume two. Yeah. So we were writing volume one and volume two, um, sort and bits of, of volume three. Yeah, and even bits of volume three, kind of at the at the same time. Um, when we started out, we we were playing with the timeline much more freely and shooting forward and backward in time, saying, "Oh, I remember when you did this to me," and you know, and suddenly we'd leap forward to 1979. And actually, when we came to the editing process. We decided that um, we would want to make it a little bit more linear mm -hmm. to give it a bit more forward thrust, so the reader felt more of a, an arc when they were reading it. And that makes that makes more sense, though, especially if, you, if you're going to then move on to the next stage. So, what, exactly. is, what is the next stage? For well, they've got Ooh, yeah. um, a Moriarty-style nemesis, called yeah, called Gruber Gruber Handsclap, and he's actually a chap they were at school with, and you know, Trevelyan's parents died in the game of Sartines. They died. Um, inside a frozen waterfall in the Tyrolean Alps. So there's a kind of kind of um, simpatico nature um, between Hans Clapp and the majors. They, he, all he really wants, he just wants to be a member of the club. Yeah. They won't have him because he's a wrong'un. And so he wreaks a terrible vengeance uh, on, uh, on the club. Wow. So he, he, appears in he appears in volume one at, at, in their school days where they um, they have to team up with him. They're forced, in fact, to um, team up with him in the annual game of Snatch the Gander, which is the um, Winstow's <laughs> sort of version of the Eton War game. Mm. Um, and and Hans Clapp proves himself to be quite a sort of um, tactician and a yeah. strategist. Mm. And, and, and they, 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 view, they start viewing him in a different light and they think, hmm, this guy is actually, he's fun to watch. Then later, I won't give it away, but they, they then meet him a couple more times. And then by the end of volume one, you realise his foul intent. They deny him three times. Okay. Where have you heard that before? Okay. Oh. I can't wait to, Actually, can't wait to read it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. Well, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> no, I meant, I meant the second and third volumes. Oh, I can't oh, wait till, yeah. they're, till they're out. Yeah. And I can't wait to see how more, much more ridiculous it can get. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Something else that we haven't mentioned is that, of, of course, they've spent all of their lives together, but at the beginning of of book one, they haven't had any contact with each other for about 30 years. Mm. Um, in fact, both have been under house arrest for 30 years, both in their respective country estates. That's the big question, why? Yeah, why, you yeah. You don't get an answer to that, yeah. so for another two books. Yeah. Okay. Which, so, you know, people are annoyed about. But, no, I think that's great. <laughs> so, <laughs> it means that we can price £27 out of them rather than just nine. Nice. <laughs> Forward thinking, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you think that, you, that uh, the characters have any, have any of your characteristics, apart from maybe the hair? <laughs> <laughs> we haven't mentioned yes. the hair, have we? Yeah. Yeah, For people listening who can't see the hair. So yeah, it's, it's, quite yeah. Lustrous. it's lustrous. Thanks, mate. Um, yeah, it's, it's like a big Shirley Temple. <laughs> um, it's a temple to Shirley Temple. It is. Yeah, it's like a, an homage. <laughs> I don't know. Do they have any of our characteristics? Um, well, well, we're both family men. You're nothing like James Bond. No, no. I like to think I am. I think that's probably what it is. It's like, a, like you said, it's a uh, sort of like male um, sort of like fantasy to be. Oh yes, I'm very. But and then again, I don't know. Maybe not because he's quite incompetent in lots of ways. And I'm not sure I want to admit to being rubbish at lots of things like he is. He's a quite a bad decision maker. So no. Probably not. It's nothing at all. Nothing at all. <laughs> nothing at all. <laughs> yeah. it's, we... our, it's our evil dark side. I like out. animals. Got an outlook. It's probably good for society. You like it comes animals. Out like <laughs> it's a, it's a safe release. Oh, animals. <laughs> yeah, and cannibals. I mean, I don't discriminate. Oh, we suddenly started having two conversations. Yeah, that's, that's going to be awesome thought. for them. That was it? my <laughs> side. Sorry. Should we do those one in turn? I was saying. Go on, yours was more important. 
Having your dark side oh, yeah. coming out, it's a, it's a safe release for everyone. Yes, uh, it's probably better for society that way. And then you agreed, and we're kind enough to laugh. And then what were you guys? Doing? <laughs> I just thought he said he said that he likes animals, and I thought that he said that he likes cannibals, and then I was upset by that. So <laughs> Do you know what cannibals? That's a really scoundrels. Well, concept, if you it? remember, there is. We can remember. Oh yeah, there yeah, was, yeah, there was yeah. a yeah. thing. So. CBC. And so, I just um, I think we maybe need to wrap it up. Just like, how, who do you see as like your audience for this? Just anyone who mm. wants to laugh, or is it, do you have like a specific audience in mind? And were you writing for them, or were you just kind of writing for yourselves? I've got a really good. Do you mind if I take this it? One? Take it away. Oh, well, I'll take it. I'll take <laughs> Finish it. with a closing number. All right. <laughs> well, early doors. We took this. To, we've now got a literary agent, but early doors. We before that happened, we took um, our uh, book to a literary agent, and he said. Do you know what? This is really funny. Funny books don't sell. You've got a snowflake chance in hell of getting this into uh, the marketplace. The classic kind of brush off reasons to say no. Um, but so, so the short answer to your question is, we, we disregarded that um, advice. We tried to make it even funnier than, than possible because we saw a gap in the market. I grew up reading George MacDonald Fraser's Flashman, Tom Sharp, some of the adult stuff from Raoul Dow, my uncle Oswald in particular, is just hysterically funny. Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff doesn't seem to exist. It's all stuff called like called Lemons for Alison or um, <laughs> Dead Kill. And those are the sort of I books. loved Dead Kill. Oh dear. No, uh, if, if there is a book called Lemons for Alice and there's another one called Dead Kill, I'm they're, sorry. They're probably to good. They're all. pretty good books. They're probably great books. <laughs> but what I'm saying, <laughs> you know what that's about? It's got like, the, the Tuscan Hills is yeah, yeah, yeah. on the cover. Yeah. And, uh, handsome dude either a photo or you know if there was a bigger budget a line drawing I mean, yeah. it's, it, it's those kind of books we just wanted to do something different that's why we got the support from turnaround and that's why it's, it's so yeah i mean I, I would say when we first started we were ruthlessly writing it for ourselves and that's why some of the edgier stuff is still in there stuff that um even our, our agent said you know i would potentially lose that bit we like Never. No. Um, That's the best bit. But actually, in terms of, and then you know, we started to think maybe if this is going to, you know, have have a life, it's probably going to appeal to men more than women. But actually, it hasn't bared like that hasn't really been the case in that respect. Uh, you know, no. there's been plenty of women of all sorts of ages as well. Quite interestingly, quite a lot of older women have read it, and they find it hilarious. It is hilarious. Um, thank you, mm-hmm. and. Um, and yeah, and um, a mum at my son's school, she did it in two sittings, and she sort of approached me in the playground and said, "Oh, I read your book." I, I, you know, I, I didn't think that she even had it. I thought um, I knew her husband had it, but she'd read it. She'd sort of snatched it from him and read it first. That's so really I've, gratifying, isn't it? I've been really pleased, yeah, with that. It isn't actually a bloke's book. It, I mean, don't you know? Men love it as well, or you know, some have claimed <laughs> that they like it, but I, I wouldn't. I, I would be reluctant to say now that it is just for blokes because the feedback we've had hasn't borne that out. No, it's just a sensibility, I suppose. So, uh, yeah. Well, it's, it. it's, it's such a great concept. Thank you. so you much fun. Much. And I can see how someone would have finished it in two sittings. So, um, so where can people buy it? Well, brilliantly, uh, you can buy it in all good independent bookshops. Um, and thanks to Turnaround, who are a phenomenal company, you can now buy it 
in every water's taste. Um, which is really, really good. Yeah, and, oils, um, waterstones, or... Well, anywhere, Anywhere, really. really. But if you can't get it anywhere, you can also go to blackdoorpress.com um, and we'll send you a signed copy or some, with a rude inscription or whatever you like, really. Is that right? Is that right? <laughs> you don't want to send <laughs> too many out, do you? We might, but there's no guarantees that. <laughs> or you can just approach us on the street. That's yeah. yeah, the recognised yeah. by the hair, but it's yeah. available yeah. in all the regular yeah. places now, which is uh, the main thing. Great, it's easily yeah. easy to get hold of. Cool. Yeah. Well, good luck with Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thank yeah, you thanks so for much. having us. It's been a lot of laughs. Yeah, okay. thanks. For thanks, us. guys. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much. Riffraff Podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. Come say hey at the-riffraff.com. Thank you.